All right, well, good morning and welcome to Alpine First Baptist Church. It's good to see all of you here this morning as we open God's Word together. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 32 this morning as we close out our sermon series on one another. Over the past month, four to six weeks, we have been looking at the various in- calls in Scripture towards one another and how this fosters a gospel culture within our church. These passages towards one another aren't just good ideas. It's not just a good idea to love one another or to exhort one another or to encourage one another. They're not just a list of best practices to forgive one another or to show compassion to one another. They are, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, that we are making God's appeal, God is making his appeal through us. He says this in 2 Corinthians, as Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Just what if, for a moment, just imagine our church, that when people came in, they felt the warm, gentle reception of Jesus and compassion, forgiveness, love, as though Jesus were really in our midst. Isn't this what Paul calls us to in 1 Corinthians? So this morning, we are going to look at the call to a gospel culture and the tenets of a gospel culture. The tenets of the gospel culture we're going to see are it's a culture of light and truth, a culture of honesty, a culture of maturity, kindness, and love, and a culture of compassion and forgiveness. Let's read out of Ephesians chapter 4 together, starting in verse 17. Paul says this, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ and God forgave you. 
So why have we made these past six weeks such a big deal on gospel culture? Why is it something that we want to spend so much time looking at? I heard something this week that stuck with me, and I think it drives home the emphasis behind loving one another in this gospel culture idea. It's a quote from Ray Ortland where he says this, a church can unsay by its culture what it says by its doctrines and not even realize it. In other words, a church can profess right, cult, uh, right doctrine, right truth, but unsay by the way that it interacts with one another that it disarms the truth that it proclaims. British evangelist Rodney Smith said it this way, there are five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. And most never read the first four. So why is gospel culture so important? It's because faithfulness to the gospel requires more than doctrinal purity in our churches. It also requires relational beauty in our churches. It is possible to preach true doctrine while at the same time utterly deny that doctrine by how we live with one another. So in other words, we can believe all the right things, we can hold right theological convictions and stances and unsay it all with how we act and interact with one another. Let me show you a picture of how this comes into play. This is a, a picture of a church in Alabama in the night, late 1920s. They have right gospel doctrine. Jesus saves, right? But they totally miss it in their practice. They elevate an ideology above their doctrine, and that totally removes their claim to right gospel doctrine. So Ray Ortland, in this idea, he puts it this way. What is gospel doctrine and what is gospel culture? He says this. Gospel doctrine is the biblical message of divine grace for the undeserving. In other words, God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus, rescues all his people from the wrath of God into peace with God, with a promise of the full restoration of his created order forever all to the praise of the glory of his grace. So then what is gospel culture? Gospel culture then is the shared experience of his grace for the undeserving. It is the corporate incarnation of the biblical messages, message in relationships, values, priorities, feel, tone, honesty, freedom, humility, and cheerfulness. The total human reality defined and sweetened by the gospel. Isn't that a beautiful way to put it? You see, every church culture is communicating something. Every church culture, when, when you walk in the doors this morning, when you are greeted or not greeted, when you are accepted warmly or not, it's, we are all communicating something, and we risk unraveling the commitment to the gospel by communicating something that's not true. Consider this. In Galatians, remember, remember Peter in Antioch. Paul writes some very strong words to Peter. What Peter was doing, he, Peter was not preaching a false gospel. He was subverting the gospel by his deeds, and he didn't even realize it. When Paul said to Peter, I do not nullify the grace of God, he was not implying Peter's teaching was nullifying the grace of God, but that his behavior was when he would exclude himself from other groups of people. Gospel culture, then, is a space where gospel truth and gospel living exist in harmony. So let's look at it in this passage in Ephesians by starting with a culture of light and truth. Let's remind ourselves what Paul said. He says this, So I tell you this and insist on it, 
in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. What Paul is, is not saying, he's, Paul is not practicing a form of racism to say that you are to exclude yourself from the Gentiles because they are less than as people. What Paul is saying is that he is giving two reasons for the reason that the Gentiles walk in this way. It's their ignorance and their hardness of heart. The instruction to forsake a way of life is what Paul is saying. A hardened heart is a common biblical metaphor, and it refers to the callous or the hardening of the skin. It describes a spiritual insensitivity or unresponsiveness. In other words, the Gentiles, they live as if there is no God. They live as if there is no consequence for their action. They live as if the self is the most important, and their pleasure and their desire and they want is the priority of their needs. And isn't that the culture that we are surrounded by today? Isn't that the draw of almost every commercial or every ad that we see? This is still truth for us today, that we do not need to harden our hearts by living for ourselves in the futility of our thinking. When we live this way, we lose sensitivity to the spiritual things, the greater things of God where he convicts and draws to us. The point Paul is making here is that we are to be a culture of light and truth. We are to walk in the light and in truth as new creations in Christ. We are to think differently, respond to truth differently, and not walk in indulgence, but in restraint. Not walk in the hardness of heart, but in sensitivity to one another. Not in impurity, but in purity. Not in greed, but in giving. Not by responding to our flesh, but the spirit that is within us. Paul's not saying by this group that they are completely gone and lost forever. Anybody can be changed by God's grace. But once we have been changed by God's grace, we are to no longer walk in our former ways. He's going to get to it later where we put off our old self and put on our new self in Christ. So how is it that we walk in a culture of light and truth? First, I think we see here, or one that I think we see here is a culture of honesty. In verse 25, Paul says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Jumping down to verse 29, he says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up. You see, the deal breaker in a gospel culture is not failure, weakness, or sin. Let me, let me say it again. As we try to cultivate a gospel culture within our church with one another, the deal breaker in a gospel culture is not that you come here with weakness or sin. That does not break gospel culture. What breaks gospel culture is when our words are, are, or our behavior make it unsafe for the sinner. What breaks gospel culture is when we gather together and it's unsafe for someone to freely confess their sins and walk in forgiveness and truth in Christ Jesus. Peter Bowler and John Wesley 
at the first Great Awakening, they had some guidelines for their meetings. And one of the guidelines was this, that everyone in order speak as freely, plainly, and concisely as he can the real state of his own heart. Here is what their expectation was, is that when we gather together with one another, that we can share all of our raw doubts, feelings, sin, questions, wanderings, and expect to receive encouragement in Christ Jesus towards one another. The scriptures tell us to greet one another or to restore a brother that's found in sin. How? With gentleness. Not with harshness. Not with, that was pretty stupid, man. No, with, with gentleness. What would it be that if in our culture, in our Sunday school classes, in our life groups, in our, our big corporate gatherings or in our, our small individual one-on-one time together, that we could freely express, express where we're struggling, the sin that we've walked in, and have a reception of gentleness as if Christ Jesus was there with us in spirit. First John says this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But he goes on to say that if we walk in the darkness, but we proclaim that we have light, that we fool ourselves. How easy is it for us to come in within the body and just to hide? to hide in our sins because we have so much shame, we don't want it to be known. A gospel culture is a culture of honesty. And the honesty is the full state of who I am and what I'm struggling with, and here's my sin, and here's how I need the Lord to deliver me. And here's how I need encouragement from one another. In this context, walking in the light, this is an open and honest relationship with Jesus and one another so that we are free to grow. In too many churches, no one feels the safety to admit anything. No one feels the freedom to confess their sins to one another. Because the harsh reality of the world is that at every corner, if you log on to social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is, the world is judging. The words are harsh by our culture. The gospel culture of our church should be different that we should repent and restore, that we should build up and encourage. You see, we have the tendency to live in two realities. Reality number one is that we live in the reality of the sufferings and death of Christ Jesus. And in the sufferings and death of Christ Jesus, we have all our sin and guilt before God absolved. Jude 21 tells us to keep yourselves in the love of God. This means that we can be honest with our sins to stay inside God's felt love. Every time we confess our sins to one another and we are restored in Christ Jesus, this is rehearsing and practicing the gospel over and over and over again. That's reality number one, to live in the sufferings and death of Christ Jesus. Reality number two, though, is to live in the reality, or reality number two is to live in the sufferings of our neighbor. And to live in the struggle of our neighbor. In other words, it would be like this. Instead of going to Jesus and resting in his grace, we look towards our neighbor and say, ah, at least I'm not that bad. (laughs) At least I haven't fallen that far. And in one way, what that does is it elevates ourselves, our own pride, our own self-worth, to 
our own standard of right and wrong. But in Christ Jesus, in a culture of honesty, we recognize that every single one of us here is a wicked and desperate sinner, separated from God by our sin and in need of his grace. And there's nothing I could do to absolve it. There's nothing that I could do to earn his love or his favor. It's only by the great mercy of Jesus that his grace comes to me. So in other words, as Paul says in Romans, that it's the kind, God's kindness that leads us to repentance. As a culture, one another, do we display the Lord's kindness at their confessions or the revelation of sin by our brothers or sisters? Or do we withdraw from them? If someone were to come and confess sin to you this morning, would they find the kindness and compassion or Jesus or the sting of like, ah, yeah, that is pretty bad. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Now, the culture, a gospel culture for us is a culture of honesty, that we can be honest about ourselves, our own state, and we can be honest that our only um, resolution to sin and guilt is Christ Jesus himself. And over and over again, it is this call to gentleness in Galatians. Paul says, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Second Timothy, Paul says, the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So we are a culture of honesty, but we're also a culture of truth. Verse 25 says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, so to live honestly, but then also to speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. There's a, a sense in this passage of falsehood and truth and how do we respond rightly in a culture of honesty with gentleness. So in one sense, Paul says that we correct opponents with gentleness. But if you look at Titus, he says to rebuke those who contradict you. You see, for us, there is a difference between falling short of the gospel and then contradicting the gospel. Does that make sense? There's a difference between falling short of the gospel and what it calls us to, to love one another and serve one another, but then there is a falling short by contradicting the gospel. We fall short of the gospel when we don't live up to its high calling. But there are some sins that are so harmful that they must be confronted, that they must be rebuked. However, all correction should strive to preserve human dignity we should never harass or treat someone with cruelty, and the aim is always to restore. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Before you remove the speck out of your brother's eye, to remove the log out of your own eye, so that you can then go and help your brother. The goal is always to restore, never to exclude. So we live in a culture of honesty and truth. Next, we live in a culture of maturity, kindness, and love. How do we do that? You see, often the greatest threat to gospel culture might not be the big sins that we think about. You might not, even though they are sins like drunkenness or adultery, those are not often the biggest threats to gospel culture. The biggest threat to gospel culture is the thing that probably happens every day and we miss it. One of the biggest threats to gospel culture, I believe, is gossip. Paul says this, 
Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. The statistics that have come from 2020 and COVID are somewhat startling about how many people prior to uh, the pandemic attended churches and then how coming off of the pandemic, uh, it's been hard to have people come back to church. And there are a lot of reasons for it. You know, there's church online, there are all these things, you know, whatever it is. And in some of those churches, what happened in 2020 drove a major wedge between people. It caused a lot of churches to split. But I, I don't believe it was the coronavirus that split churches. What split churches were our words. What split churches is how we handled and dealt and loved one another. James puts the power of our words in this way. If you have your Bible, I don't know if it's on the screen or not. It's James chapter 3. So if you ever go and, and read James, just think that James is writing a letter to a church that we've divided out into chapters. And he pretty much spends one entire chapter on our words and the power of our words. Let me show you what he says here. Starting in verse 2, he says, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are large, although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants it to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. The bit is what you place in a horse's mouth and you can steer the horse and so that what, Paul, or what James is saying, rather, is that your words have power. Your words have weight. What you say in front of others and in private conversations about one another chart the direction of a gospel culture within our lives. You know, if we were to like think about it like internally for ourselves, I don't think anybody would say, ah, I'm a gossip. I just, I just blab it all out. Nobody would really think that, you know, we're really the ones that are careless with our words. But where we become careless with our words is the one-on-one conversations in the hallway about maybe our spouse or about maybe the way a certain ministry within the church is going. I can't believe they're handling it that way. I wouldn't do it that way. And what we're doing is planting seeds of dissension and discord among one another. This is not just true for our church, but for our homes as well. For the fathers in the room, for the husbands in the room, you should be your wife's number one champion. You should be the one that outdoes her in showing honor. No one else should come close to you in how you speak about your wife. This is especially true in the way that we speak about our spouse in front of our children. So many times, I see it in school all the time where parents will come in and they'll just blame the other spouse and they'll blame it right in front of their child. What does that pour into their child? What does it make them think about their mother or their father? Mothers, 
You should be the number one champion of your husband to your children and to others. And listen, like I can speak for Jessica and I. That is a tall order for Jessica. I'm not perfect. I do silly and foolish things. But for us to live in a culture of kindness and compassionate, because our words are so powerful that they build up and not separate. You see, words have ruined families. Words have split churches. Words have taken lives. Words have started wars. There are power in our words. It's like a rudder that steers a ship. Living out the gospel in a gospel culture means that we are constantly thinking about how our words land towards one another. Proverbs 15.4, gentle words bring life and health. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Proverbs 16.24, kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. Proverbs 18.4, a person's words can be life-giving water. Words of true wisdom are as refreshing as a bubbling brook. I think it's Proverbs 15.1. This is one that I've had to memorize for myself. It's that a gentle answer turns away wrath. James, then, after the example of the horse and the ship, he turns the volume up to 10. Look at what he says next. He says, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Your words have power. What you say about your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, what you say about your spouse, what you say about Sunday school teacher, pastors in the church, what you say about other members in the church, it has power. And it either has the power to bring life or death. Kind words are like honey. Proverbs, a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. But notice what James does here. I don't think that this translation really helps much for us here because there's a wordplay that James is going off of. He says, the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Now, when we think about hell, we think about, you know, maybe where the devil lives and he hangs out all the time. But that's not what James is talking about. James is talking about a very real and literal place where people's minds would instantly be drawn to. The word here is Gehenna. And it's this place right outside of Jerusalem that trash was burned around the clock. People would go to this dump, they'd throw their trash in, and the fire never stopped. Now, I don't know if you've been to the Grant Parish dump recently, but it stinks. And if you burn trash, it stinks even worse. So James is drawing this imagery of this fire that never stops, this dirty, rotten, nasty, smelly, awful place. And he says, your words can be like this. Be careful. Not only this, Gehenna also has an Old Testament connection. It's, at, it's the valley of Himnon. And this is where people would go when, it's, it's a horrible story in the Old Testament, where they would go and sacrifice their children to the God of Molech. So here's what James is connecting us to. And this is hard, that the power of our words are just, it can be as damaging as child sacrifice. 
Like we should think about it like with that weight that our words have power. One of the most loving and God-glorifying things that we can do is to speak in loving and healthy ways, to have hard conversations with gentleness and truth. James goes on to say, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear frigs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. For a gospel culture, our words must be life-giving. And this is not an easy thing to do. I grew up watching Seinfeld. My second language is sarcasm. Like, I, I just have it, like, ready to go at a quip. And I know that's a lot of us here. And we have fun with it, and you, you play with it. You know, it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal. We need to be careful with our words. So what does a culture of Christianity, a Christian maturity, kindness, and love look like? In verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 4. It looks like getting rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander. It looks like getting rid of every form of malice. So everything that enrages us, everything that causes bitter within us, everything that would want us to cause slander towards one another, it means getting rid of this. And he goes on to say that it is putting on the new self. In verse 22, you are taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Let me show you this way. You may not know it, but in this room, we have a superhero living among us. Now, you might not know who it is, but when I show you this picture, you'll see exactly who it is. This is Russell Willie Man, and he's de defeated. I don't know who Dad was playing at that, that point, but it was a terrible man with a big sword. But Russell here in this picture, this is taken about uh, two years ago or so, he had this Dash costume. Now, Dash is from the movie Incredibles, and when Russell puts on this uh, costume, he becomes Dash. He has all the superpowers of Dash, and he is able to defeat anyone who comes his way. When he puts on this costume, he's no longer my little boy, which makes him the hero and me the villain. In the same way, Paul is telling us to put on the attitude and the mind of Christ Jesus. I have a, a few scripture references here. Paul talks a lot about this new self. In Romans 13, he says, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, for us to grow in a culture of Christian maturity, kindness, and love, it looks like walking in the ways of Christ Jesus. This takes work. This takes effort. This work and effort is not what saves you. Christ has already saved you, but we walk in the effort and ways of Christ Jesus. Let's look at Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
So here's the deal. Like within our body, within this gospel culture, when we are tempted to slander one another, when we are tempted to just speak ill of one another, we can think that in some way we are slandering and speaking ill of Christ Jesus because we are all in the body of Christ. We need to be careful with our words. Colossians 3, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, there's an important difference that we have to make here. When uh, Russell puts on his costume, or when my little girls put on their princess outfits, we suspend reality with them. We, we pretend that he has superpowers. When Jane puts on her Elsa costume, I pretend that I get frozen all the time because she has freezing powers, right? We suspend reality. However, for the believer, putting on the new self is not make-believe. It is not a suspension of reality. It is a, real, a lived reality of Christ in us, the Spirit sanctifying us. Listen to Paul in Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. In other words, this is a lived truth for all of us. Christ in you, Christ before you, Christ around you. We live in this new reality to walk in the ways of Christ Jesus with compassion, kindness, and love. We do not forsake the call to live in honesty because we can live with the realization of our sin around us. That although I am sinful, Christ died for me while I was still dead in my sins. If Christ died for me while I was dead in my sin, Christ's death still covers me when I still do sin. If there was nothing I did to earn it, there's nothing I can do to keep it. It's only by Christ's good love and grace for us. So let's end here. Of what does it then look for us? There is an inherent temptation when reading these passages about unwholesome talk or not letting the sun go down on my anger or to stop stealing. We say, well, unwholesome talk, and all right, I'll stop cussing. Or Paul says, don't let the sun go down on my anger. Okay, fine, I won't get angry. I'll just think everybody's an idiot, and then I just won't engage with them anymore. Paul says, stop stealing. You say, well, I hadn't stolen, so this really doesn't apply to me. This is not a list from Paul of do's and don'ts only. These are actions and attitudes of a heart that flow deep from a well of love. You see, a gospel culture is not just a, a culture of right doctrine, and it's not just a culture of right action. You see, the American Red Cross, it does outreach. It does good work. The United Way, it does outreach. FEMA, it does outreach. What makes the church different is that we are putting on the new self. Following Jesus is not an abstract way of living it is in the culture and compassion and forgiveness of Christ Jesus as he forgave us. You see, what makes the church different is not that we just do good deeds 
we also carry the truth of the gospel and the hope that Jesus alone saves. I'll share with you one of my favorite quotes from Tim Keller. He says this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope. Gospel culture, a culture of honesty, a culture of maturity, kindness, truth, love, and compassion, it only happens when we grasp the beauty of Christ, when we see his compassion, his mercy, his love, because we know and believe and understand his authority. I can't say it any better than the Apostle Paul, so I'm not gonna try. Let me just read for you Colossians 1 about Jesus. Think of, uh, of Jesus' love and compassion for you and his authority towards us. In other words, think of it this way. Like, I have um, a couple of debts. Like, we're paying a van note. Uh, we're paying a house note. If you came to me and said, I'll forgive you of that debt, wouldn't really mean much because you don't have the authority to forgive that debt. When we think of the compassion and love of Christ Jesus, let's look at his authority. Colossians 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, if you stop right there, this could be a very terrifying image of Jesus, who has all of this authority. Everything is mighty. Everything is his. Who are we? But if we continue reading, he says this, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Nothing can stand against the authority and the supremacy of Christ. You are safe in him. So a gospel culture, we recognize this honesty about ourselves, that we rely in Christ Jesus, and then we put on the new self of Christ Jesus, his compassion, love, mercy, gentleness, kindness, forgiveness, and we extend it to one another. So come to him. Come to Jesus. He is safe. You can confess your sins to him. You can grow in maturity and love in him. And through him, we can share compassion and forgiveness to one another. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray uh, that through who you are, and in your authority that we find 
rest because of your great love for us. That we have the ability to come to you with all of our sin, burden, shame, regret, Father, and that you are willing to take it all. Help us to live in the reality of the cross and the sufferings of Christ and not in the reality of the sufferings of one another so that we might build ourselves up to look better. But Father, give us humility to come to you, to be honest, to grow in you, and to be a people that shares your love and compassion and forgiveness freely with others. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.